Welcome to Canaan Bomb Podcast, episode number 28. I'm Tom Barthel, glad to be serving as your host for this episode, currently serving as pastor at Christ Lutheran Church in Baxter, Minnesota, a Wells congregation. We'll begin this episode with Passage and Prayer, shared by Pastor Dave Beckman. Psalm 16, 9-11 My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal Father, what amazing words of comfort you have for me. With all the uncertainties of life, I can rest secure in your loving care. I'm secure on the good days as well as the bad, on the joyful days as well as on the sad, in times of confidence and in times of anxiety. I'm secure because of what you have said and because of what you have promised. As you did not abandon Jesus to the grave, so also you will not abandon me. You made me your own in baptism, and you will not forget your pledge. My place in heaven is secure, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus has done perfectly for me. He is the Holy One who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death for me and for all people. And because he did not decay in the grave, my grave is turned into a restful stopover as I wait for his voice to call me forth at the great resurrection. Then I will be forever amazed in your presence. Then I will forever experience the eternal heavenly pleasures you have in store for those who love you. Fill me with that confidence, and keep me in your gracious care, now and forever. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Sin is never the solution. Genesis 16, 1-4 Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, Sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Abram is going on eighty-six years old now. He has been a faithful husband. We might possibly expect Abram to push his weight around and be the typical multi-woman patriarch who takes extra concubines and servants at his own whim. After all, this was not uncommon in his culture, especially for someone as rich and wealthy as he was. Yet, he is the faithful, monogamous husband for the past who knows how long he's been married. It could be up to 70 years by this point. Doesn't it seem striking to you that Sarah is willing to have her husband have sexual intercourse with another woman? Even more striking is that she's the one who comes up with the idea and tells her husband to do this. And then it is her own personal maidservant. 
In our modern culture, we probably would think someone is insane to suggest this nonetheless actually carried out. In a culture so focused on lineage and so loose on monogamy, this wasn't quite so out of place, but that doesn't make it right. Sarai's solution for being childless, whether done out of selfless desperation for her husband, or done out of desperate self-pity, or as a cold and calculated ancient form of family planning, minus all the technology we have today to make this occur, it doesn't matter. Any line of reasoning she could put out would have to hit that hard, immovable fact. This was Ron. Not only Ron for Hagar, for Abram, and for Sarai, but Ron as an offense before God, who gave Abram and Sarai to each other as husband and wife. Ron before the Creator, who wanted Hagar, the Egyptian, to have a sexually pure life until marriage, and have her own husband. Ron as an example to all Abram's household. You can do what you want if God doesn't do it for you. To make it even worse, it was a slap in the face of God who promised Abram would have a son from his own body. God, obviously, you are confused if you think Sarai will bear a son. We'll fix this for you. Do we sometimes excuse our sin by the same type of twisted logic? You know what I mean. God hasn't given me the money to give my family and church what I want to, so it's okay if I cheat a little on my tax information. God hasn't given me a body I want, so it's okay if I abuse it with drugs or alcohol. God hasn't blessed me with a high-paying job, so it's okay if I cut corners for my low-paying employer. God hasn't... you name it. Does God's call for patience, or his answer of no, mean that we have the right to dip our toes into a little pool of sin and wait around as if God won't care anymore? Sin often begins with such twisted logic. The forbidden fruit was a solution for Adam and Eve, a solution that made things worse. Sarai's plan was a solution at first, but we'll see it as the start of a spiral into problems which still plague her children, even today. Sin is never the solution, though Satan would have us think otherwise. The solution, however, is our Savior, Jesus. We don't have to reason God doesn't love us. He took the hardest road to bring us rest and peace. He saw the cross that lay in his path and knew it was worth enduring. Because in the end, God's solution is always the best. Continue to put aside all foolish, sinful reasoning as you patiently wait for his solution to all of your problems, all of your worries, all of your cares. His solution, the rest and blessings which are yours in Christ now and forever. From Chris Dreisbach's album, Hymns for Him, Have Thine Own Way. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You are the potter, I am the clay. Have thine own way, Lord, have 
me and try me, Master, today. Wash me just now, Lord. Wash me just now, as in Thy presence, humbly I bow. Continuing to take us through the book of Job, God's Word for You, shared by Pastor Timothy Smith. God's Word for You, Job 8, verses 8 to 19. Bildad is speaking. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Earlier we saw Eliphaz appeal to wisdom and to the spirit world, but now Bildad appeals to the traditions of those who have gone before. His sarcasm bites a little bit. We were born only yesterday, but mostly he wants Job to pay attention to anyone other than Job. His error is that he himself should have been paying attention to Job. But let's listen to this wisdom poem from Bildad, The Analogy of the Marsh, as we're going to call it. Um, the, uh, the, the marsh, the web, and the plant. And we'll find out what he means by this. First, the analogy of the marsh. Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. The word papyrus here in Hebrew is gome. It's the same word we saw in Exodus when Moses was hidden in the papyrus basket. It's probably an Egyptian word. The Coptic or Southern Egyptian term is calm. It's very similar. The Egyptian papyrus has to have very humid, marshy soil in which to grow. So the expected answer to Bildad's question, which is not obvious to many of us, is 
No, it can't grow in those conditions. Bildad changes his picture a little by reminding us of what happens when the water line changes. The papyrus plants shrivel up and die, even though they're still uncut. They needed that water supply as much as they needed the soil. The grass would be able to take that kind of a change, but papyrus is too fragile. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. Now, Bildad's poem has three parts. In this first part, the godless are like delicate, delicate, uh, marshless bulrushes. They can't take it. They'll shrivel up and die without the marshy water of life. But let's go on now to the picture of the web. What he trusts is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it doesn't hold. Now to a spider, her web is as strong as steel and as flexible as a hammock. But if I try to lean on it or step on it, it's useless. The godless can't rely on their rejection of God to support them when hard days come, and certainly not on the last day. What comfort will they have when the Lord asks them to show their faith? and they hold up their useless cobwebs of doubt. The last analogy is that of the plant, verses 16 to 19. He is like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. The beginning of verse 19 is, that's a difficult verse in Hebrew to understand. It appears to say literally, thus he or his exaltation on his road. In parallel with the second part of the line, it makes little sense. But the Greek translation of the Septuagint, uh, Septuagint tries to understand it by saying, such is the overthrow of the ungodly, the exaltation on his road. But here the Septuagint is fishing for a meaning. It doesn't seem to be burdened by the Hebrew text very much. The main problem is with the Hebrew word masos, exaltation. Perhaps if we carry the negative connotation of exalt, which would be puffed up, we might find a meaning like, thus he lies exalted, puffed up, bloated on the road, and from the soil other plants grow. Now this takes the, uh, the, the, the noun, which should be masos, as an adjective, which is allowable in Hebrew. Since the second part of the verse and the rest of Bildad's poem is understandable, the doubtfulness of this particular line doesn't really affect the doctrine of the Bible or the overall meaning of the passage. But I think that idea of the, uh, the, the, the bloated thing on the road is no longer uh, growing, it's dead. And now from the soil, other plants grow. In this third part of the poem overall, Bildad compares the anti-faith of the godless to a plant hanging on to nothing. Did Jesus pluck this illustration for his parable of the sower in the Gospels? While describing people who hear God's word but have no roots and no understanding, he said some seed fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. That's in Matthew 13. Jesus' explanation was this. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, the word of God, he quickly falls away. These are valid illustrations made about those who turn away from God and put their trust in anything else. But Bildad, we should remember, is making these statements, as true as they are, from a false premise. 
that Job himself is among such people. Now, we can use Bildad's words, as Jesus seems to have done, but we should take care to remember that the context of what he was saying was, was, uh, was in error. So take care to root yourself deeply in God's holy word. Let it sink in. Let it penetrate your heart and your mind. Let the water of your baptism soak in all the way down to your toes. And know that your forgiveness comes from the Lord God himself. That forgiveness will guard you and keep you through your whole life. I have a, a, just something from an ancient commentator uh, on the book of Job. This is from the 6th century uh, Gregory the Great, he he took Job 8.19 in a different way, which but I, I, I just can't hold it into myself. I've got to tell you what he said. His translation uh, was like this. He said, Behold, this is the joy of his way, the out of the earth others, that, that other out of the earth others should also grow. And Gregory says this about that. Now then, let the hypocrites rejoice and triumph to have gotten the suffrages that is the caused the pain of their fellow creatures, let the simplicity of good men be looked down upon and be called foolishness by the craft of the double-dealing. Speedily does the contempt of the single-minded pass. Speedily does the glorying of the double-dealing run to an end. That's from a book by Gregory called the Moralia uh, in uh, Book 8, Paragraph 86. But remember that God's forgiveness guards you and keeps you your whole life through. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. A closing hymn, All Praise to Thee, My God This Night, performed by Koine. All praise to Thee, my God this night.
You've been listening to Kanenbaum Podcast, episode number 28, first shared in June of 2013. For more information on this podcast and the artists featured, visit com. We'd like to thank Chris Dreisbach for his song from his album Hymns for Him, Have Thine Own Way, and also Koine from their album Church Bells, All Praise to Thee, My God This Night. To find a Wells ministry nearest you, visit wells.net. Thank you for joining us. 